it's time to go beyond the locker room talk and listen in with me, GB, producer Jay, former patients and current friends of our own Cornell-trained, world-renowned urologist and surgeon, Dr. Michael Hyman. Let's talk about the issues on men's minds where no topic's out of bounds on another sit-down with two men and a doc. Welcome to the show, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. JT, good to see you. And you, GB. Happy New Year to both of you. Doc, how are you? I am well. Yeah? Oh, yeah. New Year. Rested. We got some. We got some water in L.A. for the first time in years. It's a good thing. Yeah, in years. Yeah, and another storm coming. Yeah, New Year, new cases. A lot, uh, lot going on. You know, nice to, nice to get a break, but good to start the year off. And um, good to be back with you guys and have another show and our new listeners. Uh, I want to remind everyone you can send a question in if you would like at mail at twomenandadoc.com, M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. So check us out there. Definitely. What's, uh, and then, you know, it's free. We don't charge anything for these questions. That's so. right. Oh, so we can get consultations via yeah, podcast? Right. Yeah. <laughs> we have to always give the disclosure that, you know, you have to see uh, formally a, a, a physician before you take it as gospel medical treatment. But we can certainly guide people a little bit and give them some some concepts to think about. And uh, will this the cost be applied against my uh, deductible Always. since the right. new, since it's Always. the new year? You can Always. just Venmo me that if <laughs> you right. like. Venmo's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, do- well, Doc, I have a question for you. So JT and I were, were chatting before the show, and I was wondering about second opinions. Mm. And when should a patient get a second opinion... And how does that make you feel as a doctor? That's a great question. Well, the when is going to be very subjective, but certainly as the doctor being asked, hey, thanks for the info. I'll get back to you. I want to get a second opinion. (laughs) How does that make you feel? And then in addition to that, have you been in a situation where I'm sure you have where you are giving the second opinion? And what are the, you know, political ramifications of that? These sometimes could be, your, you know, it could be people in the hospital that you work with or people that you know or friends. And uh, just what's, how does that work in the, in the medical world? So I'm, 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 I just had somebody who came in this week for a second opinion. Second opinions happen. So in my practice, interestingly, I get a lot of people who come to me for second opinion. And that just has to do with the fact that um, it's, it's how I have constructed my business model, so to speak. Um, and I, and I say this with objectivity. In other words, I, I, it's neither a good or a bad. It's just the realities of my practice. I think we've discussed on this, on this show that, um, you know, uh, before we ever even started two minute doc, I think, um, I had left a group practice that I had been in for, um, over 15 years with, uh, three other urologists and um, it was a very traditional practice. And so the way I basically built up my business, which is pretty much the, the business model of 99% of private practices in the country, unless you're in a, working for a corporation as a salaried employee, the business model for a private practice sort of self-employed urologist is that you get referrals from the community primary care doctors. They send you patients 
You know, you go to see your doctor and they see a finding that's abnormal or you complain to something and they're like, go see Dr. Hyman. He's right down the road. Um, but when I left that practice, which kind of that practice sort of fell apart, and I, I relocated far, far enough away from my original practice that those, that network of primary care doctors was too far. So I had to either build up a new network of primary care doctors, which was going to be difficult because it's very clicky, the whole sort of referral network. And I was, it was be difficult to restart that. So I decided to do more of like a, um, uh, online marketing self-referral kind of thing, built up my online reputation. I posted a lot of videos, which people can check out on my YouTube channel. And I, you know, did all the things that I was told to do to try to boost my online presence. Um, this show, you know, I think is is very helpful. And and just lots of ways of showing people that, hey, you know, I'm a well-trained, experienced, solid urologist. With thin fingers. <laughs> With thin fingers. <laughs> lots, of, lots of reviews that, you know, are very positive. And so, you know, knock on wood, I've got uh, probably 75% of my practice is self-referred. How does that relate to your question? Because... Because um, a lot of people who are looking for a second opinion, um, most people who want a second opinion are, are, are self-directed. In other words, it's, it's, not too commonly, it's not too common that your primary care doctor is going to say, go get a second opinion. I mean, it happens. And they may say, like, okay, why don't you go see this other urologist? But um, I would say that... Um, most people are self-directed and therefore they're going to, you know, go online. And because I have a big online presence, I tend to get a lot of those second opinions. Now, your question about what leads to that, I mean, you know, of course it's subjective. It's wide ranging. I mean, I had one this week and, um, you know, it was, it was clear to me from, and I, and I, I'm going to say that it's not too unusual that these second opinion requests are coming from the same they're, they're they the, it's the same urologists whose patients come to me for second opinion because there are some are the listen, urologists referring you no, for the second no, opinion? no 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 i think what happens is, is that there's there's like like any field there are a couple of players i'll call them players urologists um there are a couple of people and and like any profession who kind of don't have the best let's just say rapport with with patients they it's just they're just not touchy-feely they don't have great rapport they they poor bedside manner poor bedside manner thank you and so they kind of upset those patients and so a lot of those patients end up turning to the internet to say i don't like that person who my doctor sent me to, and mm -hmm. they may or may not ask their regular doctor for a second name, or they may just decide on their own, you know, my doctor sent me to that guy, and that was a mistake. In the case of somebody who came in this week, I remember vividly that the issue was that um, he had a, a stone, uh, you know, he was passing a stone, his pain was controlled, and when he went to this doctor, the doctor said, okay, we're going to book this, this, and that, and we'll get your stone out. Please uh, check out with the surgery scheduler, and they will take care of it. And I guess he had a bunch of questions, and he, according to this patient, he said, oh, and then he kind of got really uh, 
curt and, and sort of didn't really want to answer my questions. And um, it was very frustrating. And then I left and I decided I'm not letting that guy do this case on me if I can't ask questions. And so that's why he sought a second opinion and he came to me. Um, how do I react to those people who are requesting it? Listen, we're, we're professionals. We have to try to maintain objectivity. I try to be very non-judgmental. I just simply say, I, I don't really comment on anything other than, I, I will sometimes say, why are you seeking the second opinion? Um, and they may tell me. And if, you're, if you're the first doctor that they've seen. I mean, I guess both cases. So I'm talking answer. about on the second the opinion second. doctor. And, yeah. and he was asking, like, how do you feel... Like, how does that work in terms of rubbing your colleagues the wrong way? And I don't really think it's, I think it's something we all know. We all, as doctors, know that people will seek second opinions. Some doctors, I think, get upset when their patients seek second opinions. Um, my response is that I don't, I, I think there's, there's no shortage of patients. There's no shortage of people. Um, and most doctors have, you know, a waiting list to get in to see them. So I don't see what the big deal is if somebody wants to ego. get a second of it. It is ego. Um, it is a lot of it is ego. Um, and some of it is like, I don't even know if it's ego as much as it is like, there is a, I think there is like a feast or famine mentality among physicians where they just get very anxious when a patient is leaving their practice or if somehow really? another doctor takes a patient from their practice. Yes, absolutely. I think well, there's a, there's a no sense. No one wants to lose a customer, so to speak. So. Yeah. It's, it's like they're very possessive of their customers, so to speak. Well, and, let me, let me yeah. ask you this. So let's go. But sometimes it's the other way around. And sometimes I'll even recommend to a patient, why don't you get a second opinion? I will say that to a patient. And what I'll sometimes say that. to patients is I'll sometimes have a situation that's really kind of complicated. And I'll say, you know, I got to be honest with you. There are some situations where, you know, and I'll even say this to someone where it's like a black and white scenario. You know, they'll say, um, I was just talking to somebody about it today because he's a, he's a doctor colleague of mine whose brother has a condition, a situation in his PSA is going up and he, and he had an MRI and the MRI was normal. And I said, you know, if you went to 20 urologists with this clinical scenario, with everything you've told me, they're all going to say that he needs a biopsy, all of them, you know? So I, I, I would give you that information and, and I'll tell patients that too. Sometimes they'll be kind of like, well, are you sure? And I'll say like, you know, if you went to 20 urologists, all 20 of them are going to 19, but usually 20 will say you need this treatment. Okay. And then I'll be honest where sometimes I'll say, you know, if you went to 20 urologists, you know, 10 of them, might say do it this way and 10 of them might do it that way. So you might want to get another opinion to hear potentially a different, you know, uh, approach to this problem. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you is have you been in a situation where one of your patients has sought a second opinion, they come back to you and they say, hey, they think I should really pursue this other treatment, not or this other procedure or something, which is you understand that, you know what it is, you can do it, but it's not the way you would approach it. Would you still proceed in that situation with that patient? Would you say, hey, respect that approach. You should have that doctor do it. It I depends. Mean, how much will you modify your treatment? It depends on the, the, it depends on how far it veers. You know, it's like, I might feel that they should have um, a, I might feel that they should have uh, 
a terp. We've talked about that on this show where they shave out the prostate. Mm -hmm. And then they go to another urologist and he says, no, you can have, you know, something less invasive like a Eurolift or, or something called a resume where they put like a needle and steam inside the prostate or this or that. And then they'll come back to me and they'll say, you know, I know you said to terp, but Dr. X said, I really could have this other thing. What do you think? And then it depends on where, how equivocal the situation is. You know, if it's in a situation where it's like, to me, it's black and white, you cannot go below the level of a TERP. Like if you do right. the, one of those other two procedures, in my opinion, it's dangerous. Or You're just not going to get the results. It's Well, no. Sometimes it's not just that they're not going to get the results. I think they could really have a complication if mm. they do one of those minimally invasive Right, because things. if you can't pee... Well, sometimes it could be that like... Maybe it's somebody where I think that if they do one of those other procedures, they're going to have massive bleeding or something during the procedure, and it's just going to be dangerous, and so I just wouldn't do it. Other times it may be like, look, um, I don't think you're going to have a complication, but I think it's a real low likelihood that you're going to have success with that other approach. In that scenario, sometimes I'll say, if it's still within the standard of care, Obviously, because sometimes they'll say such and such advice that I do this. And I'll be like, you know, that's not really within the guidelines of standard of care. I, I can't I can't offer you that right. procedure. But if it is and even though it's my second choice as far as what's best for them, I'll say, look, as long as you understand that there's a only a 40 percent success rate with that. But that's what you really want to do. We can do that. Makes sense. But, so but it's, if why it's in the you, margins of what but you would hold do. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just say, listen, my advice to you is, is, the, is the TERP, not the other procedure, and if you really want it, then you should go see the other doctor. Well, because let's say, let's say, my, let's say that quote-unquote other procedure, like Eurolift, let's say in, that I feel that I do a very good job with that procedure, and I know for a fact that that other doctor has only done like 10 of those Eurolift procedures, and I've done 300. And this guy is just really hell-bent on wanting to have the Eurolift procedure, even though it's only like a 40% or 50% chance of success, and I think he'll have a much greater likelihood of success with the TERP, but he really wants to try the less invasive office-based procedure instead of going into the operating room under general anesthesia. Should I kick him out and send him back to the other guy who's only done 10? So let me ask a question in, in, in that. At the end of so, the day, I want to do what's best for the patient. Sure. So in that particular situation... Um, do you have the patient sign something, or you just make notes in the in the file that you discuss the options with the patient? And I make notes. I say, like, my recommendation was a, a TURP. The patient has sought second opinion and is uh, is very much averse to um, intraoperative management with anesthesia and is uh, extremely... Um, you know, do you, ha, feels do you, very strongly have about any... having a ba uh, an initial office procedure. And I'll say, I, I discussed with him that this is has a much lower likelihood of success, and if so, he would only be served by a TERP. So in the operating a room. patient has never come back to you? Or, or, or have you been in this exact situation where you did the, the Eurolift instead of the TERP and then the patient was unhappy? Or the... Or the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I mean, they all, I, I tell, and, and then you I counsel all patients that there's no guarantee that this will be successful. And, you know, I, while it would be extremely rare, I mean, I would say maybe like, I could count on one hand out of 300 
Eurolifts I've done where someone really was worse off and we had to do something to manage that issue. It's extremely rare that they're worse off from a, from a Eurolift. It's either that they didn't get the, they either got improvement, it wasn't as much as they wanted, or they didn't get any improvement at all. And then um, those are people where I'll say, like, you know, at that point, we need to do something more invasive to get you to where you want to be. How do you feel about patients who try to self-diagnose themselves via the internet and then and then come in? What what? Again, is same the same philosophy? Don't pass judgment. Don't let ego play a role. So when someone comes in with like a big stack of papers, the one thing I won't do is like someone will have like a stack of like. 40 or 50 pages of stuff they printed out and they'll hand it to me to look at. And I'm like, I'm not going to read all that. Like, if you want to summarize for me what you got there, happy to answer your questions. But I don't have the time to spend an hour or two going through all this material you printed out and then opine on that. It's just not it's beyond the scope of what I'm going to do here. But I will answer questions. And so people will come like with supplements or this or that. And I'll listen and I'll either I'll, I'll speak the truth. Like a lot of times people come in with supplements information and I'll say, listen, there's really such a massive, you know, uh, potpourri of these supplements. I, I couldn't really make an opinion about those supplements. I don't think that they're. There, most clinical trials haven't shown that most of those things are helpful, but you know, you do what you want to do. Other times people will do, as you say, they come in and they'll say, Oh, I, um, I have a kidney stone. And I'm like, Oh, how have you had a cat scan? No, I just know it's a stone. And then I'll go through all these questions and then I won't be a jerk about it. I'll just say, listen, you, you could be right. But in my opinion and my experience, and based on what I just looked at today, with the ultrasound I did, the urinalysis, I would really be surprised if this was a kidney stone. So I try to be gentle and respectful. All right. Well, thanks for that, Doc. That's uh, a third opinion or a first opinion on a second opinion, something like that. <laughs> um, you had a case that was leading to some treatments that I thought were interesting. So we, we didn't talk much about it, but it sounds like a, an area that was worth um, sharing. Well, so, you know, one... Uh, I would say one of the most common urinary symptoms I hear from both men and women is frequent urination. Like, I'm just going all the time. Got to go, got to go. The feeling of it and then got to go. And yet not a lot comes out. Is that usually what happens? Well, it could be all of, it could be any or all of the above. They, you know, and those are the questions you ask. Like, oh, you feel like you got to, you have an urge and you actually, do you actually go when you have that urge? You ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, yeah, I feel like I constantly have to urinate. And then... I constantly have to urinate, and then they say, um, and then you say, like, well, do you actually urinate? And then they could, they might say, well, no, I just feel like I constantly have to, but nothing, I never actually have anything to come out. But more often, people will say the most common thing that I'll hear is, yeah, I feel like I have to go sometimes every thirty minutes um, when it's really bad, and sometimes I'll get up like six or seven times a night. And this could be a woman, by the way. This could be a woman. In fact, you know, that seems like it's more commonly that. I would say that um, it's... And I don't know if that's bladder size or what that's about. It's not bladder size. Um, it's not bladder size. But, you know, there, for women, it is... What, what you have to understand is, in some ways, for women, generally speaking, I mean, this is a huge generalization, but it's usually much more obviously a bladder problem when they have to go all the time. In men... It's more complicated because they have a prostate and they have a long urethra. 
Mm-hmm. And so you don't know if this is really a prostate issue making them pee all the time, if this is like a urethral issue, pressure. because the urethra might have a scar. We've talked about strictures, mm-hmm. which are scars in the urethra. All those things can make you have to go more often because the bladder is working against resistance. Women, they've got a one-inch, if that, a half-inch long urethra. It's almost never forms strictures or scars. So they just have a bladder. There's no prostate. There's nothing obstructing. And so 90%, 95% of the time, it's purely a bladder issue, right? And so then the question is, well, what, what kind of bladder issue is making you go all the time? And that same issue can happen in men, but like I said, it's much more straightforward to determine what's going on in a woman. Um when it comes to frequent urination, uh, all things being equal, I'm just saying. Um, sometimes it can be complicated. So, um, you know, the two things you really, the one thing you really want to know is like when they urinate, are they going small amounts or large amounts? Like if a woman says, I'm getting up six times a night and she's urinating like, you know, 10 ounces each time, well, that's what's the math? 60 ounces in a night. Yeah. That's a lot of yeah. urine produced in one night. So is that really, so what do you think? And is, is that a bladder problem or what else would be causing her to make 60 ounces of urine at night? Assuming she's not drinking a two liter. That's pop. a good question. You, you do want to do like a, sometimes you have to do a diary. Some people you find out that they're drinking ridiculous amounts of water. Some of that could be a psychiatric condition. It's like they don't even know they're drinking so much. Other times they're like, under the impression that they're supposed to drink that much because mm-hmm. there's this, all this press about how much you should drink water and all this stuff. But what else could it be? If, if there's that much output? Um, In just the six or seven hours of time they're supposed to be sleeping. Overactive? Well, so overactive... It, 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 overactive bladder wouldn't have anything to do with how much the yeah. volume of urine is. Now, it might have something to do with the times you're going. So let's say you get up six times and you only go one ounce each time. That could, although not definitely, but very possibly be an overactive bladder. But if they're making 60 ounces... Something with the kidney is just... So, yeah, I mean, obviously... Too much fluid. So somehow they're dumping out too yeah. much fluid. Right. It could be a primary kidney problem. Like the kidneys are not... Kidneys are really supposed to concentrate, get rid of the extra fluid in your body, um, but also concentrate the urine so that you don't, you know, you don't lose too, too much fluid, right? So they're holding back. Well, that's what... I think of as a person's getting dehydrated at a certain point. If unless they're assuming they're not taking in that much. Whether they're dehydrated or overhydrated, the ki- it's the kidney's job. It's like the it's like the dam, it's the gateway. Yeah. Right? If you're overhydrated, it's the kidney's job to get rid of it all. If you're underhydrated, then it's the kidney's job to keep it all, mm-hmm. right? But it, so it could be a kidney problem. That's why you're dumping out 60 ounces in that short period of time. And if you were, do you think you'd be thirsty? Yeah, you'd be like yeah, losing all that thirst, fluid. Thirsty. You'd be drinking a lot. Another reason, though, what 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 other reason that's as I would I w- I'm going to use this expression behind your kidneys, like beyond going. So we're going up your urinary tract. We're getting to the kidneys beyond the kidneys. Now we're getting into your body, and what could be going on in your body that's making you get rid of all that fluid at night? 
some sort of bacteria? No. Something with salt, I would think. Like well, well, so, and this is asking you guys to think too hard. I mean, things that you probably wouldn't think of, but like... Don't make me think too hard. Yeah. If you, if, <laughs> what would be reasons for you to that, have... That's just a nice way of saying from, you guys are yeah, stupid. Aside right. from, well, let me, I'm going to lead you to the answer. Exactly you're going to, you're going to come up with the answer. If you were just drinking like anybody normally every day, but you were accumulating lots of extra fluid in your body, such that, where, where do you think that fluid would go? If you just started building up tons of fluid. You, you get bloated, like your stomach. You might feel a little bloating. Where else does fluid settle out in your body when you have too much fluid in you? Colon? Nope. Your skin? Skin, which, and, and certain areas of skin in particular. I mean, like not... Uh, the your, epidermis? Your extremities. Extremities, yeah. right? So your legs, yeah. the, that's the classic. Somebody mm, gets big-time yeah. ankle swelling, yeah. leg swelling. That's, that, that's often with kidney failure. Well, it could be with kidney failure. What other failure? There's something else, something failure, where fluid is backing up into your body. And there's another area that it's classically associated with this is your lungs. Have you ever heard of people who get too much fluid in their lungs? Yeah. And what happens? Well, they have a hard time breathing. Breathing. They're coughing. Pneumonia. Okay, so what are the reasons why? Why would somebody have all this fluid in their lungs, fluid in their ankles, and in their legs? And because we're not processing. So how does that fluid? How does that fluid? What's responsible for getting that fluid out of you? There's one organ in your body. The that heart. You, heart. The heart. What is the heart? It's you're not pumping, pumping enough all that oxygen. And so why would the heart not be pumping very well? Blockage, of some sort. The, the I, I'm getting at is like congestive heart failure. So that is what congestive heart failure is, when your heart is simply not pumping enough. So you mean to tell me that going to the bathroom and peeing out 60 ounces overnight is a potential symptom of congestive heart failure? It could be. I don't know if I would say it's a symptom, but like what, what, what sometimes happens to people is that they have congestive heart failure, They've accumulated all this fluid in their body, in their lungs, and in their legs. They're swollen and all this stuff. And, and then their doctor, their primary doctor, says, wow, you've got all this extra fluid on board. Your heart isn't able to handle it. I'm going to prescribe something for you. And what will he prescribe to get rid of all that fluid? A diuretic. Correct. And so what's that diuretic going to make your kidney? The diuretics work on your kidneys. What do they make your kidneys do? Expel. Open up. Open, Open up. up the dams. Let all that fluid out. And so a lot of people, they'll take the diuretics in the evening, and they'll dump out 60 ounces of urine at night, and they'll find themselves going every 30 minutes. Hmm. So that I'm just giving you a real wide range. The flip side is they only go one ounce each time. That's probably the most common thing I hear. I'm only going like two or three ounces each time. And so that scenario probably is what you said before. And oh, their bladder is like a twitchy bladder. We've talked about this on the show. Your bladder kind of twitches every 30 minutes, every 60 minutes. And when it does, it may only have two or out, three ounces. You're running to the bathroom, right? How do we get the bladder? And, and in women, in men, if they have that sort of twitchy bladder, it may be primarily caused by the bladder itself or it may be part of, and parcel to something else, like an enlarged prostate that's pushing on the bladder or causing the bladder to malfunction or something like that. Is uh, twitchy a clinical term? I made it up. Can you, can you, if you feel that, can you wait it out? Will it go away? You know, Some like, let's people say you're can, yeah. in bed and you just, will that work? 
for some people. Did you we, say we call in bed or embed? <laughs> in bed. Um, it's it's some people can what we call abort the contraction, abort it. They can they if you sometimes if you do those kegels where you sort of tighten your pelvic floor and you know women know more about what this means, but it's like the idea when you're urinating and you suddenly stop in midstream, those muscles. Um, those pelvic floor muscles, if you learn how to kind of contract them, you can sometimes do that when you're having an urge, and sometimes it will abort the hmm. contraction, sometimes. And then you won't feel the urge. But then, of course, it'll come back. Um, so, I mean, in the interest of time, I'm just going to... There's a lot of workup we do, tests we do to try to confirm if that's the condition. And some of those tests we've discussed on the show, there's something called Eurodynamics... We've talked about that, where we can put a little tiny catheter in the bladder and measure if the bladder's having those contractions. Mm. But the real question is, like, how do we stop those contractions? Yeah. So like any doctor, you guys can play doctor. If, if you know I have this condition and I'm a woman, and what, what are you first going to... How do you present to me the treatment mm. options? Whenever we talk about treatment, we always want to start from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah, the so least, what are the least invasive? The least invasive to more invasive, yeah. right? So what's the and and is there something least invasive before we even? What do you think the least invasive option would be? Hmm. Do nothing. That you know what? That's true. You could do that. Although you do like any option, there's pros and cons. What are the cons of doing that? You have to deal with this. The symptoms. There's something thing. more to it than that. Can you think of any other cons in this particular condition that we're talking about? Um, I guess it could worsen. Well, what did we? What are the symptoms we just said that we were just talking about specifically? Contractions of the bladder. That's not the symptom. That's the oh. condition. What are the symptoms? Having to pee a lot. Having to pee a lot. And we were specifically talking about having this to is, pee a lot. This is a twitchy uh, question. Well, at when, night, so then you're, gonna, night, you're not going to get enough sleep. Not going to get enough sleep. Or let's say you're mm. a little, you're a 95-year-old and you're a little unsteady on your feet. Yeah. Is there a greater likelihood you might have a fall? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's downsides of doing nothing. Always remember that. Always, that's something I would say on this show is one of the most important things people should hear. There is a pro and a con no matter what, whether you do something treatment-wise or you don't do something treatment-wise, there's a pro and a con. Don't forget. And if we do pick a treatment, of course there's a pro and a con. So what beyond doing nothing, what's the next least invasive thing to do? I would think there's a, maybe a medical so yeah, medicine. You're, you're half right because there's actually something before medication but more than doing nothing. Exercises of some sort? Behavioral or dietary modification. So, yes, there are certain types of exercise. We talked about Kegels. Dietary, we could talk about, like, uh, maybe reducing caffeine yeah, intake. No caffeine. And watching your fluid intake. Okay, medications. So, yes, there are drugs. We've talked about them, I think, on this show. I won't get into detail. But there are drugs that will stop the bladder from doing that. Pills. Like any pill, what, what do we need to ask? Just like I said, for any treatment option, you need to ask the pros and cons, right? So what do you think the cons are of these drugs? Well, I would have asked a generic or brand name. <laughs> the cons of the drugs. Side effects. Side effects. Yeah. So what? Drugs. So we should think about the side effects. So these types of drugs, they may stop the bladder from contracting, but there are other organs that we want right. to be able to contract. I'm not talking about your arm muscles, but there are other muscles in your body that kind of slowly contract, like the bladder. What other muscles, what other organs have contractility in it? The stomach? The stomach. 
or in this case, you're right, but in this case, I'm really specifically thinking about the colon and mm. really the rectum. So if the rectum doesn't contract, what happens to you? Then you're in trouble. <laughs> That's one word for it. <laughs> what, what's the trouble? Bad smell. Angry partner. Why, 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 do you have a, why is that? What's the condition? The door's always open, I'm guessing. Now, actually, it's the other way around. You're constipated. You're just going to stay blocked if you're up. Rect okay. Yeah, if you're blocked up, your oh. rectum doesn't contract. So these drugs can cause constipation. And those same muscles also have to do with, like, salivation. I'm getting uncomfortable. Your, your salivary glands are actually the similar mechanism of contraction. So you get dry mouth. I've got dry mouth. Yeah, you get dry mouth. You get constipation. GB typically does experience a lot of yeah. these things as we're discussing them. He's, as he's downed his second cup of coffee. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, anyways, that's the drug treatment. And then um, there are those are systemic treatments, right? Pills are systemic treatments. What about what? What else we can talk about? If it's not a systemic treatment, what other kind of treatment? If it's not going throughout your whole system, what would we talk about? A localized treatment. Localized or targeted, right? So, what can you can you just imagine in your own minds? Like, what would that look like? Like a steroid injection. Okay, that. Well, I. If it, that's then, a systemic treatment, because that goes in your skin. That's uh, an injection. Massage. That's also not um, well. If I guess if you massaged your bladder, but I just kind of gave away the answer. What would be a targeted treatment? Uh, a catheter. That is a targeted treatment, but that's not a great treatment for <laughs> this condition. A lot of cons. What other targeted treatment? A targeted treatment means we're doing what? We're targeting what? The bladder. The bladder. Yeah. So we're we're going to target the treatment directly to the bladder or something much more specific to that region of your body than something systemic like a drug, okay? So one thing we could do is deliver a drug directly to the bladder mm. that's not going throughout your body. It's not going to cause constipation. It's not going to cause dry mouth. How could, we, how could we deliver a drug directly to the bladder muscle without it being swallowed and injected into your skin? You'd have to go, you go through, through, the, through the urethra. You have to go in through the urethra. Mm. And so we do use a drug that we go through the urethra. You, you, there are some approaches using something that you can just put through a catheter and wash inside the ladder. It doesn't work. Do you do this in your office, or is this you have to go to the both, hospital? Both. It depends. So there is a drug we can inject into the bladder muscle through a scope that we put in the bladder. Is this and a long-term drug though how often are they getting every three months so do you keep this drug it depends some people we put the drug into the bladder wall and they are really great for sometimes up to a year yeah you know but what usually it's every three to four months and so we have to do it again so it takes about 10 minutes someone can just develop and they can't get rid of it correct yeah. you know most people who develop so most women who develop this condition don't get rid of it all right so let me ask a question here because what drives me crazy when i go to the doctor and they recommend something and then they don't have it handy so like then you have to come back for another you session. have to come back for this so, so do you have Absolutely. this like in your cabinet the problem is is if you're seeing me and we talk about it i can't just like get a room ready for you, put you on the table, get all the equipment sterilized ready, put the scope in you, inject the drug in you yeah, right on that visit. No, you have to come back. Okay, so it's not it's not like getting a shot in the arm. This no. is like this is no. a, procedure a, a procedure to right. to um to inject the medicine. To inject the medicine or what, apply the medicine. Right, okay. Right. I, I I understand that. Right, right. So you're okay with that, Chibi? 
Well, I understand it <laughs> yeah. now because sometimes, you know, like you want to go get a certain, like a tetanus shot or something, and, the, and then, then the doctor doesn't have it. You've got to go somewhere else, and it just becomes, you know, a big arduous. hole to do. Right. Arduous. That's a better word. My, by the way, Michael, Dr. Hyman, did extremely well on the verbal part and English part <laughs> yes. of the SAT. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I really didn't. I think, to be honest, I was never really good with words. And I would say, like, compared to my wife, I'm still not great. But obviously, when you go to graduate school, and in my case, medical school, you acquire a lot of vocabulary. Well, that's because you study Latin. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, so anyway... Um, and what's the Latin root of arduous? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> and you've had women come in with... I actually person. never studied Latin, to be honest. But I, then how do you know all the Latin well, terms? Memorization yeah. of medical language. Yeah. And then you start to learn that, like, oh, cysto. I guess cysto is bladder, you know. There's that oh, okay. Anyway... What's, what's um, the Latin term for off-topic? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, non sequitur. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, it turns out, you, you, you haven't asked the really the $64,000 question... I don't about, think we ever will. About the, about <laughs> Based on how this is going. About this procedure, what do you want to know? If we're going to do this procedure, what do you Can I drive about? home? Do that's you, not the question. Well, you want to know if that's do you the... Val- do you validate for parking? No, no, no. I, is that the issue? <laughs> I mean, because we've it could be something else. Well, it's don't like, you have questions about what I'm going to inject in your bladder? Don't you want to know what I'm injecting? <laughs> no, I don't care. I trust the doctor implicitly. Trust I'm going to put some magic potion I have in the back of the, uh, you know, in, in my fridge. I'm just going to... Jump. I'm going to just inject something. Don't you want to know what that something is? I mean, and I, what the nature of it is, how it works. I mean, I should. I certainly would want to understand the I, side effects. I trust but, the doc with all of his injections. But I actually wouldn't. I wouldn't think to ask about what specifically it is. I would want to know what it's going to do. Yeah, I, yeah it's a medicine that's going to make me feel better. So yeah. you give me the name of some medicine and like, okay. I would I mean, advise to our listeners that I don't anytime know what someone's going to... is. I mean, I would advise anytime someone's going to inject something, and I will bet that most of our listeners will say, yeah, I definitely would do that, is knowing what it is that's going to be injected in you and what are the pros and cons, no matter how much you trust your doctor. If I still use Twitter, I would do a poll. Yeah. Put it out there and ask. But. Uh, Dr. Okay. Hyman, does this happen on date night? It could. Depends on the date. And especially depends on the drug. So, all right. Let's say I asked you that question. What is it? Botox. Okay. See, he, this was a trick question, GP. Oh, because <laughs> he knew that he had this little card up his sleeve. And he's like, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna nail them on yeah. this one because they didn't even ask. Yeah. Uh, for for I the, mean, li- I know it's not turkey gravy. I get, but, like, yeah. what happens if your legs are up in stirrups and we're about to start? And I turn to theirs, I'm like, all right, give me the Botox. You guys would be like, Botox. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, there is uh, part of his practice, cash only. Right. It's uh, he'll also do not only the bladder but the brow. Well, no, it's just that your your bladder will have no more wrinkles in it, which is, which is great. It's going to look amazing. So, do you know how Botox works? Yeah. What about what about my crow's feet, Doc? Uh, we it, can, it, we it, can talk about. It. I don't do uh, I don't do cosmetics. I think it paralyzes the. And actually, this is covered by insurance. Yeah. It paralyzes the muscle. Don't Correct. give him credit for that. I, I that said was good. It. Well, that wait. Okay. Is, is the Botox JT that he got it? Okay. Is the Botox you. people are injecting, you know, to prevent wrinkles, the same, same that same. is in the bladder? Botulinum toxin A. Oh, how much is the markup at the dermatology? I don't, I don't have no idea how that works. We do not get any reimbursement for the drug. We we don't. We just get in. The insurance just pays us the price of the drug. We get no markup. It is a good question. Like, if, if only you, thing I get paid for is the actual procedure code, 
which is cystoscopy and an injection of a drug, which is like, I want to say, 275. Can I get Very my little. Botox through it you takes me and then 30 go minutes. to the dermatologist? Well, that's, well, that's money the question. Like, do they charge differently depending on yeah. what the usage is? Absolutely. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Of course, those dermatologists, I think they charge like a thousand bucks, don't they? Or 500 bucks? No, well, we're saying the drug manufacturer. Oh, um, I don't think so. I think it's the same. It's all the same. Interesting. Anyway, so yeah, we inject well, I, I this in the bladder. It's a paralytic that works on the bladder muscle, which is what we're trying to do. And it's extremely effective. Hmm. It works extremely well in the vid. It in the gets majority. rid of the twitch. It does. So a lot of people respond to Botox. That must but be one of those things that it's life-changing for them. It's life-changing And it's them. a fairly it proven, it simple... W- what's, the, what's the full uh, terminology for Botox? Cystoscopy injection of botulinum toxin A. There you go. So <laughs> Rolls um, right off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but no, it's a, great, it's a great approach. It's a great approach have you, to the problem. Have you heard of bot- uh, Botox being used in other procedures? For other things, yes. aside from the cosmetics, yes, they use it. I think for um, some people get these like rectal spasms, which can be really painful. Hmm. I think it's called tenesmus, and it's like where you feel these intense, painful spasms in your anal area and your rectum. And I think the GI doctors will inject it there. Um, so that's that's one way. And then uh, again, who I know knew? We, uh, who knew? Jay, yeah. did you know Botox for the use of right. bladder spasms? I did not know. Yeah. Had no idea. Um, and then the last way, uh, well, there's some other things, but just in the interest of time and to just summarize, there is, um, instead of going directly to the bladder muscle, we can target treatment to the nerves that go to the bladder muscle, okay? Mm-hmm. So those nerves come out of the, um, the sacral um, spine, okay? The sacral spine. So, like, we talked about this on a previous episode when we got into the cauda equina syndrome, the sacrum is sort of the last bone of your vertebral yes. column. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of, it's of, like this of triangular where, you, bone. Where, where you inject for that. I'll tell you, it's like this triangular bone. I can't wait. And it's got these little holes on each side of that triangular yeah, bone. And that's where the, the nerves from your spinal cord. So, so back, oh. back, back here. Yeah, yeah. And so he, uh, GB is pointing to kind of the central area at the top of the buttocks. And that is... That is where we pass a little we we what we do is we do a test in the office and we target one of those nerves and there's a way you can find the nerve you you lie on the table this is going to sound a little harsh but it actually isn't that big of a on, deal. on your belly you lie on your belly and then we have a way of marking out that sacral um bone and the the sacrum and we have a way of marking out the exact foramina which are those little holes I was telling you about, where the bladder nerves go through. In this case, it's the second sacral foramen, or the S2 foramen. And so we, we numb up the skin over the what S2. Type of, what type of pen do you use? A felt pen. A felt pen, and that just washes off? It's yeah. not like an indelible marker? Correct. And we numb up the skin. GB, as usual, is asking I'm brilliant get, questions. I'm going to get J, letters about and that. And JT, <laughs> JT is shaking his head, That's folks. the moment of this JT episode. JT is that, shaking his head. Yeah. Um, so we numb up the skin. Just to repeat, what kind of pen was used was the question GB was asking. <laughs> Do you ever draw a face? Yeah. <laughs> you numb up the skin, and you uh, pass what's called a spinal needle, which is like a, it looks a little scary. It's like a three-inch long needle Oof. through the skin into that sacral foramen. And once you're in that sacral foramen, that spinal needle has a hollow bore. You can feed through it a very floppy, soft wire 
goes through the hole of the of the needle. You pull the needle out. Now you've got a little wire sticking out of the skin. You tape the skin. Wait, so hold on a second. You How tape do you know? the wire. Hold on, let me finish. You tape the wire to the skin. You connect the wire to a little tiny box that's about maybe an inch and a half yeah. by an inch and a half. It's send a and it sends a little pulsation. Yeah. And you tape that to the skin, and that's temporary. And you send the patient home with that whole setup. And then they come back, and you take it all. And then all of it just slips right out. I mean, it's all taped to them. The lead, even the wire, it just yeah. slips right out of their skin. If they tell them it helped them, you then schedule a procedure in the uh, probably in a surgery center and they're just sedated, like a twilight, like you're having a colonoscopy. You do everything that I just described exactly the same way, except now you make a little incision on the buttock, and you put that little box underneath the skin, and you close them up. So they actually have, it's like a pacemaker. Wow. It's pacemaker like for the bladder. Yes. And that works. And it works. That's great. Who knew? Now, I actually want to go back to the Botox for a second. We didn't. If I was the patient, I would ask you, Okay, great. It's going to stop these 30, 30 minute intervals. Correct. But what will will obviously I'll have some control. I'll be able to Correct. It just becomes a norm a more normal time Correct. period. Correct. Correct. Because the bladder fills and that's what then creates the right. contraction. Right. But normally your bladder should you should have the sensation to urinate from what are called stretch receptors oh. in the bladder muscle. But you don't even get to use those stretch receptors when you have this bla overactive right. bladder condition. It's just it's just contracting by itself, and you're feeling that contraction. So the stretch receptors will then yes. become the, yes. the so indicator. On, on, okay. So on the Botox, so when you get the Botox, um, do you use the whole thing, or do you use part of it, and then they come back like six months later and you use the rest? How does that all work? No, you, three use the, you use the whole, there's a bottle, and it's got 200 units in it, and you you draw up and inject the 200 units, and then they come back in three to four months, and you get another bottle. How, so how do you... That's the... Do, is there ever... Do you ever have to use more, or that's just the standard There's doses? actually two doses. There's 100 units and a 200-unit uh, vial, and uh, typically I will start with the 100-unit vial because tip, one of... There's another question you forgot to ask. Remember what we started this conversation yep. with? The... Pros and the and cons. cons. So the cons and is, you, you may, can you over-paralyze? So in this case, you can have, what's really you're asking is side effects and complications. And one complication of Botox or side effect, but I would, you know, a side effect could be difficult to urinating because your bladder isn't contracting enough because you've over-paralyzed it. And a real complication would be you can't urinate at all. You so can't. if you can't urinate at all, let's say we do the Botox and the next day someone calls and they're like, well, I didn't go last night, but this morning I really have to go, and I can't go. Nothing's coming out, and my bladder is feeling so full I can feel it pushing up against my belly. So even the even the stretch receptors, the the they the can't, stretch receptors are working. Right, it's telling you to go. They can't contract, but you're not contracting. Right. That's so what do you have to do in that situation? You're calling me. You're like, oh, my bladder's gonna burst. I can't. I can't and, go. What do you have to? What do I have to do? Well, either catheter, I guess. I have to catheterize you. So you come in. And I have to put a catheter in you because it could stay that way for that long. It wouldn't you wouldn't say call me back in an hour? No, I mean you're like you're like super uncomfortable. No. I'd be like no 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 come on in no. And I'm at dinner. I say <laughs> second opinion. Call me, yeah yeah the, <laughs> the other thing I told you guys, but in a previous show, is that when your bladder gets really distended. It gets it, weaker. Right. The muscle yeah, stretched bad. out. It's like hanging from pull up bars right. for yeah, we've talked you about can't that. do pull ups now. So we put the catheter in. 
And usually I'll leave that catheter in for like 48 hours. Hmm. You're not going to be happy, but that's the way it is. And then we'll take it out. And invariably, not invariably, but uh, most of the time, that's all you need. And you'll start urinating again. I've had maybe in 15 years, maybe one person where it took like two weeks for them to start urinating again. Holy cow. So, So give us a sense just before we go, like in your practice, Pretty common this three month Botox and 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 the and or the bladder pacemaker or is this a more unusual? Situation? Well, again, it depends on how your practice is. I mean, in my old practice, when I was in the big group practice and I got a lot of referrals from primary care doctors, I would say it was way more common that I saw those patients, and I would say that um, at any given time, I probably had a dozen people getting do- mm. Botox. So like, you know, every three to four months. That's right? nice recurring revenue. It's actually not. No? Because you can't upcharge for the Botox per your contract with the insurance. But you're seeing someone every and, three months. That's more often than not. you can't upcharge for the, con- for the you know, again, w- I just want to remind our listeners, it's not all about the money. We're doctors. We want to <laughs> treat people. Right. But if we are talking about the business side of, of my of medicine, it's really almost a loser because it hmm. takes me a good 30 to 45 minutes to do the injection. And the you can only charge for the cystoscopy and injection of medicine, which is like 275 reimbursement from Medicare or Blue Cross or, or insurance. Hmm. And that's not pretty that's not great for, you know, the Time. overhead that I have. Right. Yeah. That two seventy five is not enough. Hmm. So if I were doing that, I would do it. But it's by no means. Uh, and by the way, you were asking, did you, do you do this in the office or the hospital? I would say more often I do it in the hospital or in the surgery center because it hurts to do these injections. You try to numb up the bladder with like oh, lidocaine, really? but it hurts. Yeah, and you buried the lead on that. Some one. people, some people, <laughs> <laughs> some people hate going to sleep under anesthesia or in the hospital, and so they'll just say, I, I, "How long will it take?" And I say, "Like." you know, six or seven minutes, and they're like, I'll, if you can try to numb it up a little bit, I'll just go for it. And a lot of people can handle it, but there are plenty of people who can't. And so I have to put them I'm out. I'm one of those people. I have to put them out. And you make less than what I just said if you do it in a hospital or a surgery center. It's like 150 So now I have to go there. I have to drive there. I have to wait till they're put out. I have to do all that work. It's all for 150 bucks. It could take me like two hours round trip, three hours, you know. Hmm. So it's not. it's a money loser. But you do it. You do it. You don't do everything because it's a moneymaker. Having said that, I told you at the beginning of the show that I've self-marketed my practice since I moved out of my big group. And I've directed the marketing so that I don't get a lot of those patients now. Hmm. You know, I don't I don't try to, you know, market for those. I don't. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I actually thought of you over the holidays, and then, and then we'll wrap it up, because I saw a Eurolift commercial on TV. Uh-huh, yeah, and, they're doing that. Well, you know, they're it's sort that. of surprising to me, because I'm used to seeing, you know, Ozampic or, or uh, you know, some Drugs. erectile dysfunctional thing. Not but, a procedure. Yeah, and, yeah, and it is especially weird. for that. Um, yeah. So it they're made me think, really like, aggressive. yeah, it must well, be successful for yeah. them. Well, that's, you, you and, know what else? I saw I saw a Peroni's drug commercial. Yeah. Oh, Zyaflex. So, yeah. And that's from the, the doctor from your old practice? Yeah, Dr. Gelbart. But it yeah. led me to ask, like, how often are patients coming in and, and proactively asking for these drugs that you're that they're Well, it's one of the things that I, because I have kind of carved out an expertise as a center of excellence for Eurolift, it's one of the things that's sort of prominent in my marketing plan, if you will. And I so, thought you were the circumcision guy. 
I <laughs> I market for that too. Those are the kind of a lot the of adult things that I do. Yeah, yeah adult it's not a, it's not a moil, folks. Right, I'm not a moil. I don't do uh, for newborns. But yeah, so uh, the answer to your question is I do see. I'd say like five percent, which is a lot. Five percent of the Eurolifts I do come from the products, the the marketing efforts from the product itself, hmm. and that people then see the commercial or they see an ad for it and then they go online they looking, and yeah. they search for your lift and they see that I'm a center of excellence and then they come to me. For I want to be a center of excellence just for something. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from Why a, not? a smoked brisket, there's got to be something not? else. Why not? All right. Well, thanks, Doc. I, uh, I, I am just uh, a center. Yeah. <laughs> there's Well, no, JT no, is no, excellence. No, there's no excellence here. <laughs> Well, we've learned a lot, as always, this episode, and we've gotten multiple opinions, most of them from GB, so I appreciate well, that. JT well, will I, have I, a lot of work editing I'd this like, particular JT, episode. JT, I'd like to combine your excellence with my center. I don't know. Now I'm, I've got pause. I might need an injection of something before I'm able to I do just that. want to say, ladies and gentlemen, this episode had a lot of verbiage by GB, but if you're noticing that there really isn't that much ver- verbiage by GB, you'll know why. <laughs> see, see, because JT does all the editing. <laughs> see, here's what's going to happen, though, Doc, is that they're going to hear a lot. And then they're going to wonder, oh, my God, there was more. <laughs> so there you go. All right, guys. Good to see you. We'll yep. talk to you soon. Happy Always. New Year. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Two Men and a Doc is hosted by Dr. Michael Hyman, GB, and Jay Tannenbaum. Produced by Jay Tannenbaum. The views and opinions expressed here by Dr. Hyman are based on his medical training and experience. But if you or someone you know are experiencing any medical issues, you should, of course, consult your own physician. We welcome your questions about men's health or anything you've heard on this podcast. So write to us at mail at twomenandadoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. If you live in the Los Angeles area and want to see Dr. Hyman, you can find his contact info at drhymanla.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N-L-A.com. And these links are also in the show notes. That's it for this week. See you next time on Two Men and a Doc.